What if you woke up one day to discover that the aliens had landed? And they were going to judge you by the way you treat other living beings. If you participated in the enslavement and execution of other sentient beings then you will be enslaved and executed. This is Good Day World number 332. <laughs> G'day world, Cameron Riley, you're listening to the Podcast Network. My guest today, Melbourne, born, philosopher, Peter Albert David Singer. Peter is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University and Laureate Professor at the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at the University of Melbourne. Now, Peter's uh, quite famous, uh, mostly for his 1975 book, Animal Liberation, which many people believe is sort of the, the founding document of the animal rights movement, the animal liberation movement. And uh, he's written many, many books, though. And uh, in the 90s, was a co-founder of something called The Great Ape Project, an organi- a book and an organisation that were arguing that our closest relatives, the... Uh, non-human hominids, great apes, chimpanzees, etc., bonobos, should be given basic legal rights uh, uh, the same as humans. They you know, should not be allowed to be enslaved, uh, torture, used for experiments, etc. In the last week, there's been this report that in Spain, there has been a non-binding resolution that was passed by a Spanish governmental committee Uh, recommending that Spain adopts a lot of the the recommendations made by the Great Ape Project. And and they've given them, I think, four months to have this put into legislation. And it looks like it's going to happen. This was a a cross-party committee that overwhelmingly recommended that this get passed into legislation, which would be, I think, a major turning point in uh, human history when we start to treat animals with the same sort of respect that we believe anyway in theory that humans should be treated with not that that happens all the time as we know Hanif in Australia Guantanamo Bay in the US etc but so uh, I invited Peter on to come on and talk a little bit about uh, animal rights a little bit about uh, utilitarianism and uh, this is the interview that I did this morning I'm heading off to France tomorrow for a couple of weeks to attend the International Napoleonic Society's conference in Ajaccio And uh, I will probably do a couple of shows from France, either Paris, where I'm spending about a week, or Corsica, where I'm spending another week. But uh, if I don't get around to it, have a good couple of weeks, kids. I'll talk to you when I get back. Peter Singer, thanks for joining us on the show today. I invited you on because we want to talk about this development in Spain. But before we do that, can we just get a little bit of background for people about utilitarianism and and your personal journey towards uh, becoming uh, the the father of the animal liberation movement? Where did it start for you? Uh, I think you've really asked about two slightly different things. Um, I mean, yes, I am a utilitarian and uh, yes, I am 
considered the father of the uh, animal movement by some people, but uh, they're really independent. I think my you don't have to be a utilitarian to share my views about animals. Uh, conversely, uh, you could be a utilitarian and not share my views about animals, although you know, I think you'd be mistaken. But uh, So they are really separate things. Um, well, you make a, you're absolutely right. And I, I had um, the privilege of having Jack Smart on the show a year or so ago. We talked a little bit about utilitarianism from his perspective. Can you give, right. can you give people a, your definition of utilitarianism for those that aren't familiar with it? Sure. I mean, utilitarianism is the approach to ethics that says we should judge actions as right or wrong depending on their consequences, Uh, something that will, all things considered, have the best consequences is the right thing to do. Um, Now, of course, we can discuss what we mean by the best consequences, um, and uh, there's a lot to be said about, you know, what it is to, to take consequences into account over the long term, and uh, for whom they should be taken into account, but but essentially that's what it's saying. It's saying, look, it's not a matter of conformity to some rule that says this is right or wrong. Uh, it's rather a matter of, of what is the result going to be, what is the outcome going to be. The greatest uh, good for the greatest number, I've often heard it uh, paraphrased. Yes, yeah, so that's a somewhat misleading kind of way of paraphrasing it because, of course... Um, I mean, something could be good for 51% of the population, um, but absolutely terrible for 10%, and that would be the wrong thing to do. Uh, you could justify you to, anything from genocide to invasions of Iraq on that rationale. Could I you? think it possibly could, yeah. So I'm not so sure, actually, about the invasions of Iraq, but um, but certainly the persecution of a minority can be justified on that basis. But, um, but you know, utilitarians have always said, well, it's not really just the number, it's... It's how much uh, they are made to suffer or or benefited, and so a, a small benefit for uh, even an overwhelming majority is not going to outweigh a uh, sort of very severe loss for quite a small number. So let's talk about your journey to uh, animal liberation. Where did that start for you? I, I read somewhere that uh, a university student that you were at university with, a friend of yours, mentioned something to you and it set you on your journey. Is that uh, accurate? That is completely accurate, yes. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I was a graduate student already, so I came to this uh, fairly late, you could say. Um, I hadn't really thought much about animals. There wasn't much discussion about animals when... I was an undergraduate. No one took them very seriously as a kind of uh, ethical issue. Uh, but when I was a graduate student at uh, at Oxford, I just happened to um, have lunch with someone, another student who was a vegetarian, which was pretty unusual in those days. Um, and I asked him why he was a vegetarian. Uh, and you know, most people, I guess, the the few vegetarians there were then, well. They were people who were vegetarians perhaps for religious reasons. They might have been Hindus or something, or some might have thought it was good for their health. Um, but uh, this guy simply said that he didn't think we were justified in treating animals the way they were treated to turn them into meat, um, which was you know, honestly something I'd never really thought about um, at that stage. Uh, so I talked to him a bit more about it. Um, he recommended that I look at a book which had been published about uh, factory farming, which this was in 1970 or something, but there was already, factory farming was already sort of developing, and uh, 
I knew nothing about it, so I looked at that. Um, I was pretty shocked, really, by the way animals were being treated to turn them into food, and uh, I started thinking about, well, what's the ethical basis for treating them in this way? How can we justify the idea that, uh, of course, we would never treat humans in this way, but that it's okay to treat animals in this way? And, and the more I looked around at what people had written on this, or, or perhaps you know, also the way the topic had been ignored to a certain extent, um, I thought, well, there's really something wrong going on here. There's really something that can't be justified. It's, it's in fact the kind of prejudice we have against taking seriously the interests of beings uh, who are not members of our species. And uh, that's what started me off on the whole uh, journey to writing Animal Liberation. Which came out in 1975 and, and is the book which many people consider to be the, the, the founding thrust of the animal rights movement. Th- this journey over the last nearly 40 years that you've been on, uh, how do you feel you, your success has been? Uh, it must be frustrating to be pushing uh, this sort of story for four decades. Well, um I mean, it's both frustrating and rewarding. It's mm. frustrating that um, you know we haven't made the progress that we would like to make, that I think that we ought to be making, given how straightforward and, and sound the ethical case against the way we treat animals is. On the other hand, we have been making some progress. We, we've been making you know, quite exciting progress in the last decade or so. I think the first, uh, first few years were, were harder work. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's rewarding and frustrating. I just wish we had got a lot further and a lot of time has passed, as you say, but, uh, you know, the issue is still there and there are a lot of people supporting it. That's something you know pretty amazing in a way when you think about what it was like, uh, 40 years ago, how the issue was completely ignored. Um, there were no sort of large animal rights organizations around at that time, uh, there were very few vegetarians, and those who there were were generally considered cranks. Um, legislation about, you know, to really change the status of animals was nowhere on the agenda. So uh, there have been a lot of important changes. So I believe that you were one of the uh, founders of the Great Ape Project, along with Paola Cavalieri and uh, some contributions from people like Richard Dawkins and Jane Goodall to the, the book that started the Great Ape Project. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so uh, the actual idea for it uh, came from uh, Paolo Cavalieri, who's an Italian animal activist, and and myself. Um, uh, We decided that we would like to edit a book about it, and we invited uh, many people to support it. And uh, we did get support from uh, the people that you mentioned and many others. Uh, uh, So that was in the 90s we floated that idea, and... Uh, again, it took a while to get going, um, but uh, we have been able to make uh, some progress. The, the basic idea is that uh, we should use the great apes as a kind of bridge to get across this great gulf that we place between ourselves and other animals. We should see the the non-human great apes, that's chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos, and orangutans, um, as uh, our closest cousins, as of course they are in uh, biological terms. Um, and uh, also beings who are like us in terms of their emotions, their uh, intelligence, their self-awareness, and so on, and uh, that we have no grounds for denying them some basic rights if we think all humans have basic rights. 
there are no grounds for saying that they don't extend to the great apes. So we, we wanted to use them as, as a kind of, say, as a bridge to uh, get across the idea that, well, we are animals too, um, that in fact the, the closest relative to a chimpanzee is not a gorilla, as many people might think, but it's actually us. Uh, and uh, if we get people thinking in that way, maybe we can start getting them to think of animals as uh, something other than just property, as something other than things, but as as persons with with rights, as we are. And so the the reason I reached out to you, it was uh, this news that was circulating around the world uh, during the last week that you seem to have made some tremendous progress in Spain, where I believe there's a bill that's... I I don't think the bill's been signed off yet, but it certainly seems to have been uh, accepted by the Spanish parliament to actually extend these sorts of rights to apes. Well, what's happened is that... um a resolution has been passed um, by one of the committees of the Spanish Parliament uh, to say that the Spanish government should pass such a bill. Um, and because in the committee it had this broad support across uh, a majority of the parties, it is expected that it will pass through the Parliament. Uh, now, it will take some time to say exactly what the rights are. It's, um, the resolution is, is in broad terms. It does talk about, it explicitly names the Great Ape Project and says that Spain should, should support the Great Ape Project um, uh, and promote its aims and uh, uh, extend certain rights to great apes to protect them from uh, torture and maltreatment and being killed. And uh, it even uses the term enslavement, which is interesting because you know normally we reserve that for humans. and. Uh, de facto animals are slaves. I mean, they're legally property. You can use them more or less for what you want to. Uh, but this is really saying, well, we can't treat apes as, as slaves. Uh, so, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's exciting. Um, uh, and it also uh, urges the Spanish government to take the issue up at the European level uh, through the European Union. So uh, hopefully it will, over the next few years, get even broader support. How did this? How did this happen in Spain? Was this something where there was a group of activists working behind the scenes for for many years to bring this to the attention of the legislators? Yes, that's right. I mean, um, the Great Ape Project actually uh, got fairly decentralised. So we we had a, we wanted it to be an international project, and uh, a number of different groups got set up in different countries. Um, and we became more active in some than others. I'm not quite sure why. I mean, there was a uh, you know great ape set up project set up in Australia, but it, it more or less I, I went to the United States and uh, it, it simply wasn't very active here. So uh, whereas uh, in some other countries it was more active, and Spain turned out to be one of those that had a a core group of people who were very dedicated, very hardworking, had good connections, including some political connections, and. Uh, for that reason, the Great Ape Project has been more prominent in Spain than elsewhere. Uh, there's been a lot written about it in newspapers, and now they finally achieved this this resolution of the uh, committee of the Spanish Parliament. I mean, if it if it passes into legislation, I mean, it's it's a stunning uh, turning point, I guess, for the human race and the way that we treat 
other animals. You mentioned before that the Great Ape Project was intended to be a bridge to get us to think about rights of all animals. How far do you see that this extends? How far down the animal kingdom? Do, do we uh, give these rights to ants and, and mosquitoes as well? No. I, I mean, for me, the, 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 the final cutoff is the capacity to feel pain. And um, I'm not convinced that mosquitoes can feel pain. Uh, uh, or ants. I mean, the behaviour of insects is often much more rigid than ours, and it doesn't really seem necessary to assume that they are conscious to explain their behaviour. Uh, so, you know, unless there is some strong evidence that they are, I would say we should focus on on those animals we know are conscious, which uh, certainly would include vertebrates and perhaps some invertebrates like uh, the octopus, which is. Uh, seems to be a remarkably intelligent invertebrate. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, really we should be focusing on, on the vertebrates and particularly on the birds and mammals, I would say, at, at present. Um, and in terms, you know, I, I think I think you have to acknowledge that there are differences between different species. And uh, in terms of things like uh, a right to life, you might say, well, some some kind of self-awareness is important for a right to life, and the great apes are self-aware. Uh, it's not so clear that uh, all of the uh, birds and mammals are self-aware, but it certainly is clear that they can feel pain. So we really need to give them rights uh, in accordance with what their capacities are. And I would say, uh, you know, a right to have their interests taken into account, not to be made to suffer um, unnecessarily, uh, that should certainly extend to all vertebrates. Um, questions about a right to life, I think, uh, are more difficult and you know, might be reasonable to say that it will limit them to certain species where we can see evidence of self-awareness, which would include the great apes, would include perhaps uh, some of the cetaceans like uh, dolphins. There seems to be evidence of self-awareness. And if there is in dolphins, there probably is in some of the uh, the whales as well, um, maybe elephants. Uh, so it's really a matter of being open-minded as as the findings come in about uh, self-awareness and and uh, capacity to see yourself as existing over time in other beings. Then uh, things like a right to life might be extended accordingly. Why do you think this is an important thing for us to take action on? Well, I mean, it's important because. You know, we're talking about tens of billions of sentient beings uh, whose interests at the moment are just being uh, ignored. Um, you know, if you if you walk into a chicken shed, say, um, uh, you know, these are just sort of cogs in a machine for producing chicken flesh. Um, they have no, uh, there is no individual concern for the animals at all. You have uh, twenty thousand birds in a single shed. Um, They've been they've been bred to grow so fast that their bones can't really support their weight, and uh, quite often they will just collapse in the shed because the their bones collapse under them. There, there's no individual person walking around checking them out and seeing if they're all right. Uh, if they collapse, they just die. If they collapse and they're not in reach of water or food, they just die of thirst or, or dehydration, and uh, and eventually the corpses get collected. So. You know, if you have that attitude to sentient beings who can suffer and feel pain, there's something seriously wrong going on. And if that's happening to billions around the world, and it is when we're talking about chickens, we're talking about tens of billions, 
you know, more chickens being killed each year than the entire population, human population of the planet, um, then uh, this is obviously a very serious thing that, that we should be concerned about. But there's there's obviously a lot of problems that the Earth is facing at the moment, and we all have uh, a limited amount of attention that we we can apply to these issues. What is it about this issue that you think? I mean, obviously, it's horrifying when you put it in those terms, but it's been going on forever. Uh, why do you think it's something that deserves more attention now than it's got in the past? Is there some sort of consequence to us as a species if we don't start to take more concern for other sentient beings? Oh, look, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly a believer in karma. I think we, we might do bad things and get a get away with them. Um, uh, you know, clearly there have been consequences for us from factory farming, like uh, like bird flu, for instance, and, uh, you know, various other salmonella outbreaks and so on. Um, but no, I, I, I mean, I suppose it's, it's happening now, I think, because we've perhaps reached the stage in our moral development where we have extended rights to all human beings, at least in terms of, you know, uh, the level of, of declarations that we sign and things like that, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and uh, conventions rejecting racism and so on. So, so it was necessary to extend uh, rights to all human beings before we could seriously consider extending them to animals. But having reached that point, We've now in a position to say, well, maybe that's not enough. Maybe um, there is still somewhere further to go. And although it's good and very inclusive to say that all human beings have basic rights, uh, if we use that in a way that says only human beings have these basic rights, then there's something wrong going on. I've had... um several AI specialists like Ray Kurzweil on the show over the last few years and they talk about this uh, time when some of these guys think in the next uh, three or four decades where we're going to have sentient machines. I often wonder if a sentient machine turns around and looks at the human race and looks at the way that we treat other sentient beings, if that will be a justification for uh, terminating our own existence. Well, I mean, you could certainly imagine that uh, if you did have, if we did create sentient beings, they might look at us and say, "Yeah, well, you know, we could do a better job than these guys in running the place." Mm. Um, our track record's uh, appalling. Yeah, our, our record's not really good. So, <laughs> so we better be careful if 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 we get to that point. I I guess one of the things that really interests me about this whole space is. From a from a movement perspective, how do you get this on the agenda? You know, you, we, we talked briefly about Spain, the, where there seems to have been some success. And obviously, being a vegetarian is a lot more common and, and perhaps socially acceptable now than it was in 1970. But how do you get people to pay more attention to this stuff than they do today? I mean, I, I've been talking about the Spanish uh, progress with people over the last few days, and I get this look of just complete shock in their eyes. Uh, what kind of things can you do to get people to start to think about this? I'm, I'm sure you must have these discussions all the time. Yes, and it depends who you talk to as to you know how shocked they are. I think it depends a lot on their background and upbringing. Obviously, people who are looking at things in a kind of, uh, I, I guess, coming out of a religious perspective, I say, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a Western religious, Jew, Jewish or Christian sort of perspective, um, tend to think more of, of things as focused on humans because uh, they've been brought up to believe that humans are made in the image of God or humans have immortal souls or something like that um, and, and that we're unique in that way and 
So the idea of you know crossing that gulf between humans and non-human animals uh, is difficult for them. On the other hand, those who, who don't have those sorts of religious preconceptions, and particularly those who've, who've actually assimilated uh, an evolutionary ap- uh, approach to understanding who we are, um, are readier for it. I mean, they, they can see, yes, well, we know that uh, genetically we're 99% uh, identical to chimpanzees and uh, we look at their behavior when we look at Jane Goodall's films or something of that sort, we can see a lot of parallels. So, so it makes sense. There are, you know, there's, there's not a sharp discontinuity. There's a gradual uh, emergence of humans and, and chimpanzees from common ancestors. Uh, so, so why not extend uh, some rights to them? I, I think that's the kind of attitude that obviously I'm hoping will spread. And I think in many countries it has spread. We've got uh, a much greater acceptance of a secular and uh, evolutionary approach to who we are than uh, we've had in the past. And uh, in the United States, there's still some way to go, of course, because conservative religious beliefs still have a stronger hold. In Australia, you mentioned that the Great Ape Project stumbled when uh, you moved overseas. Uh, what do you think the chances are of us seeing this sort of progress in Australia? And is the new administration friendly to this kind of stuff? It's too early to say, I think, and, and the animal groups in Australia um, are reasonably enough focusing on things like uh, factory farming uh, rather than on uh, something like the the great apes. I mean, we don't have any experimentation on great apes in Australia. Um, we don't really have much commercial exploitation of them. They're, I think all the great apes in Australia are all in zoos and basically, you know, the major zoos in uh, whether it's Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, and so on. Um, have reasonable conditions. I mean, the, the great apes are a great uh, draw for them. They don't want people to to be complaining about the way that they're they're being kept. So, so their conditions are not too bad. So, although uh, you know it's an important symbolic change to have some recognition of their rights, it's not going to really make a big difference for the conditions of of apes here. Uh, whereas in Spain, I think there are more apes held sort of commercially and private zoos and being used for uh, more commercial purposes uh, um, like appearing in photographs with tourists and things of that sort I think has happened so so it, it did make perhaps a more significant difference um, but you know I, I hope this government will prove more sympathetic to changes on factory farming but that, that's been the big issue that the animal movement has been pushing in Australia uh, and it's been difficult to make progress uh, not sure why I guess the the farming lobby is a problem, plus the, the federal structure of Australia has made it difficult uh, too because you can't get change in, in just in one state. You've got to get agreement across uh, all of the states, really. Um, otherwise, of course, if you ban some kind of factory farming in one state, you would just get the state being flooded by factory farm products from one of the other states. But you'd like to see eventually Kevin Rudd give an apology to chickens as uh, well as our Indigenous population? Well, I don't know that he needs uh, actually apologise to them. They're not going to understand the apology. Uh, he should simply uh, pass legislation that um, you know they have to have a decent life if if they are going to be reared for food at all. And uh, you know that's certainly something we could question. But if they are, um, they should they should have ample room to move around. They shouldn't be kept in a flock that's larger than their uh, natural condition that they can cope with, which is a flock of about 90 or 100 chickens, perhaps and not tens of thousands. Um, 
you know, those are the sorts of things that are, are the practical options for us at the moment. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about where you see the end point for this. Now we, I imagine, tell me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that you would ideally like to see us not raise animals for food, not keep them in any sort of uh, farm. Uh, you know, this obviously requires a, a massive, I mean, to me, mind-boggling change in the way that we live on the planet. It, has there been a great deal of thought in the literature around this uh, been put towards what life would be like for humans and non-human animals? Well, I certainly would like to see, ideally, a world in which we didn't raise animals for food and didn't uh, exploit them commercially in any way. Um, and I think that's entirely feasible for societies like ours, where we have a variety of ways of producing food. And uh, there would actually be important evolutionary, uh, sorry, um, uh, environmental advantages uh, in avoiding animal production. I think the growing awareness of climate change is a major uh, reason against animal production. The, um, uh, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, the UN body that's um, you know, really the, brought all the experts together on this, has said earlier this year, uh, I asked people to stop eating meat because meat is a major producer of greenhouse gases. Um, the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations said that there's more greenhouse gases go into the atmosphere from livestock than from all forms of transport combined. Wow. So, so you know, if you want to reduce your greenhouse gas footprint, um, sure, it's great to get off your car and uh, get onto your bike or at least change your car for a Prius or something, but, but you'd actually do better if you if you cut meat out of your diet. Um, that would make an even bigger difference. So, so there are a lot of reasons coming together for this. Um, now, as I said, you know, this is definitely something we can do in the industrialized, developed world with a lot of alternatives. I'm not recommending that um, you know people who are living a traditional lifestyle, whether they're uh, Indigenous Australians or whether they're uh, you know uh, maybe herding Maasai in uh, in Africa uh, or uh, Inuit people in uh, in Alaska. I'm not suggesting that they have to give up meat. Um, that's a different question. Uh, but um, you know, people who who can just walk into a supermarket and choose from a range of nourishing animal products or or non-animal products, um, and can be nourished themselves just as well from products that don't come from animals, uh, I think yes, that that is a better option. In terms of how we uh, live on the planet, though, with the the rest of the vertebrate kingdom, if we're not putting them in farms or cages or, or killing them off, uh, it, doesn't the planet then get overrun by these animals? I mean, how, how no, not at all, because, no, I mean, I mean the, the reason that there are billions of chickens on the world is not because chickens are such successful uh, breeders, but because um, we are breeding them. I mean, you know, we are deliberately producing them. We have these huge breeding operations, of course, that are set up exactly to produce the billions of chickens that the commercial industry requires. And the same is true of, of pigs and cows and everything else. So uh, there's, you know, if, if the demand falls away for these products, as I hope in time it will, um, then the uh, chicken growers and the uh, beef producers and so on will simply uh, produce for fewer of them. And uh, uh, there won't, you know, no doubt we might still keep a few of each species going. We don't want species to become extinct, but um, 
uh, there'll be no danger of us getting overrun by them at all. Okay, and those farmers grow, you know, crops instead. Well, yes. I mean, uh, you can't grow crops everywhere that you can raise animals. That's true. But some some areas uh, will know that you know go back to their their wild state. And and the good thing is that uh, we can feed ourselves much more efficiently by growing crops. That uh, uh, you know what we're doing now, which is growing crops and feeding them to confined animals in factory farms is is the most wasteful and inefficient thing we could really do uh and that's a major contribution to the current food uh, price rise i mean uh, people talk about the fact that we're you, you know producing biofuel particularly in the united states we're turning food into into petrol to put in our in our in our cars but if you look at the figures um a much bigger waste of food of the food we produce uh comes from feeding it to animals, uh, which wastes about uh, you know, at least uh, five-sixths of the food value of what we're growing. And, and because uh, China in particular is demanding more meat, uh, that's for pushing up the prices of, of grains and soybeans, uh, and that's the major cause behind the food crisis. I'm glad that you brought up uh, climate change before because I, I wanted to ask you about that. Obviously, People have been talking about uh, the damage that we've been doing to the environment and the need to leave sustainably since, well, I, I know Buckminster Fuller was talking about it in the, the late 40s and early 50s. And it's just been in the last couple of years, I think, that we've seen this major shift in the way that it is talked about in the media and by governments and, and a general popular understanding of the issue. In the same way, the animal liberation movement has been trying to get people to think about these issues and change their behaviour for, for several decades now. Do you uh, Are there lessons to be learnt from the climate change movement's success in the last few years that can be applied uh, in terms of animal liberation? Well, I, I, I don't think they're exactly parallel. I mean, obviously, uh, one of the reasons that there's so much interest in and concern about climate change uh, here in Australia is that uh, we are being directly affected by it. I mean, we we notice it every time that we walk out and look at our, our gardens and uh, they're pretty dry, but we can't just uh, go and turn on the sprinklers. Um, and uh, so we are seriously concerned for our own interest that we are running out of water. Um, and I, you know, that's why there's probably more concern about climate change than there is here than there is, say, in the United States, where uh, at least over most of the country there hasn't been that problem. Um, so there isn't really a parallel there with the animal movement because there isn't that, uh, I don't believe there's a sort of straightforward self-interested argument in the same way that there is uh, on climate change. There's no direct pain to people over the issue yet? No, I mean, you know, some of my friends in the animal movement argue that there is, um, some of them would argue that uh, you know there are health consequences to people who eat meat, and uh, you know that's that's certainly something you can debate. I, I do think that eating a lot of animal products has been shown to be unhealthy. Um, there's this big obesity so, issue here and in the United States. There's I, definitely I, a big Austra obesity. Issue, Australia yeah. is now the, the most obese country in the world per capita. That's just insane. That was amazing, actually. I saw that figure. Yes, I was astonished by that. Um, yeah. Um, and I'm sure that meat and animal products plays a part, but of course, you know, so does so does sugar and uh, and, and and other fats. It's not 
it's not only animal animal products. I have actually known some people who are a bit overweight who are vegetarian or vegan, although it's it's much less common. Yeah, I was vegan for uh, a decade and I was still overweight. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, uh, it's been great. I really appreciate you coming on, Peter, uh, giving us some background. Congratulations on the success in Spain, and uh, I hope it goes even further. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you, Cameron.